I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun, for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and uh, Dispatch Media, Dispatch Spearmint Gum, Dispatch Floor Liners, Dispatch This, and Dispatch That. Um, it is Friday morning, not too early. Um, and, uh, last Friday, right after I finished recording the remnant, um, the Supreme court overruled, uh, Roe v. Wade. And I thought for a minute about re-recording the whole podcast and decided not to, maybe that was a mistake. Um, but uh um but i felt like i couldn't say anything new or special or unique about any of it um just by hearing the top line news i wasn't going to read the opinion and i didn't have time to read the opinion i had to write the g file um i had to get home and 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 cook the meatballs for the sauce and there was this helicopter following me anyway so i decided not to do it um and now it feels like i've had my say about it a bunch and everybody who's interested in it has has already done their due diligence. Um, so I'm not going to dwell on it. Um, I don't know what I will dwell on, but I do want to talk about just like just just originalism, right? Or the, forget originalism because I, I, I my eyes kind of glaze over when I hear my friends argue about the differences between textualism and originalism and original understanding and all this stuff. Um, just more broadly, um, I, I, I find the whole, there are a few places where like, I, I get, I, get, I still have the capacity to be shocked by the will, what I guess I have to call the willful ignorance of very smart people to not understand certain basic things. And it's one of these things that makes me think that, you know, ideology is a lot more powerful than people realize. And that it's one of these just sort of staring in you, staring you in your face examples of how, um, whether you want to call it ideology, you want to call it categorical thinking, you want to call it just sort of confirmation bias or partisan bias or, or political fervor, whatever, you know, labels you want. I don't really care. The point is, is that it's one of these things that, that shows how even among elites, um, rational sort of good faith um, understanding can be very difficult. And I don't think that this is a left-wing problem or a right-wing problem. I think it's 
I don't even think it's an American problem. I think it's a human problem. But it's one of these places where it tracks with the left-right stuff pretty well. Like, I, I, I honestly, just as a matter of just sort of like common sense, don't understand how anyone could not be at least somewhat originalist in their understanding of what the of what constitutions are for, right? I mean, if you've ever played Monopoly or Risk or Stratego or virtually any other board game, at some point there's a dispute about something in the game. And, you know, whether you can build hotels without building four houses first or what about the free parking thing or yada, yada, yada. Um, and what do you do? You go and you grab the instructions. And you settle the argument by saying, this is what the instructions say. Now, you can have an argument about what the instructions say. You can disagree about how to interpret what the instructions say. But normal people go to the instructions, right? And they'll say, um, you know, and you can have an argument about, like, should we disregard the instructions or whatever? That's... That's fine for, for Monopoly. You can also, in Monopoly, create deviations from the rule at the beginning of the game, right? You can't change the rules in the middle of the game, at least not with everybody buy, without everybody buying into it. That's not fair. That's the stuff of arguments. Similarly, like you can't make up new rules for Scrabble in the middle of the game that are to your advantage. Um, and anyway, so like the Constitution, it's not a perfect analogy, but the Constitution is basically the instruction manual of the federal government. Um, and it's it's not just the instruction manual of the federal government. It's also, you know, um, it's the, the basic rules about the, the, the liberal order, for want of a better term. You know, what things are our rights, what things aren't our rights, yada, yada, yada. And... Um, the thing that drives me crazy about all of these arguments about the constitution is that people, the people who are outraged by what the Supreme court has done this week, or there are a couple of things that bother me about it, um, or in the last two weeks, three weeks or whatever, about conservative jurisprudence generally from the Supreme court. The thing that drives me crazy, the, the things that drive me crazy about it are first on this originalism stuff. Um, they never provide an alternative system for how to interpret the Constitution. They might have alternative interpretations of specific controversies, but you know the only way you can test, you can tell whether somebody is fair-minded in these kinds of arguments is if they offer and they think that originalism or textualism, right, or just again reading the instruction manual ism, um, if they think that's wrong, fine. But what would they do? And if they come up, if they come up with a system, which they almost never do, but if they do, if they come up with a system that always benefits the liberal position or the progressive position or the outcomes that they want, they haven't actually come up with a system. They've just come up with a way to rig the system for their benefit. You have to have, uh, if you're going to have a rules-based order, you need rules that will occasionally inconvenience everybody across the ideological spectrum and um, um and this is something that like i 
like I read this long Josh Seitz essay in Politico earlier this week. I think it was this week. And, um, you know, it's all about how stupid the, the originalist approach is. And my friends in NR have just taken it to task. And I, I, I side with Dan McLaughlin and Charlie Cook and all that. In fact, I was the one who, like, I was texting with Charlie Cook about it the morning the piece dropped. Um, but, you know, the originalist argument says, you know, and I, you know, David and Sarah should be doing this, but um, basically the way Alito laid out the originalist argument, I think, is a legitimate way to lay out the originalist argument, is that if there's a right in the Constitution, it's in the Constitution, right? The freedom of speech is in the Constitution. You don't have to guess whether that's a right. You don't have to have an argument about whether that's a right. It's there, it's written, it's in the instruction manual. And then if you want to make a claim that other things are rights other than the freedom of, you know, like that aren't written into the Constitution, you need to make an argument that, um, that the, 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 the founders would have agreed, right? You need to make an argument that um, there's uh, a historical evidence that such a right exists, you know, the right to own a dog. It's not in the it's not in the Declar it's not in the Bill of Rights it's not in the Constitution, but you know, pretty much every founder probably had a dog. People have had dogs in every generation in America, um, and uh, so and it's it generally falls under the the property right, which in the in the, in the Constitution does mention property. Yada yada. You know, you have an argument about it, and if you can't find anything through reason or history in the past or in tradition or just in sort of common sense that says something is a right. Um, the presumption is that uh, it is something that the democratic process can regulate. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's about it. Now you can say it's flawed and, and obviously it can, there are, there are complicated cases that you're like, well, I don't know about the history of all this, right? Uh, Sarah makes a very good point that a lot of this depends on your level of generalization. Um, and she is the example of how, sure, in um, in the founding era, everyone understood that you had a right to get married. Um, so yeah, that's a right. And then at the same time, if you narrow the scope of the generalization and say, but did anybody have a right to marry another person of the same sex? You'd say, absolutely not. They didn't have it, right? And so there are complicated cases, complicated questions that come up in all of this. But what's the alternative to this sort of general approach? Is it to just simply say that the Supreme Court gets to make up the rules as they see it? Because um, if that's the system that you want, um, that's not going to work out for liberals and Democrats and progressives for quite a while um, because there's a six to three, you know, conservative majority on the court. And, um, and I don't want to live in that kind of society. I don't want to live in a society where whatever the personal preferences of the Supreme Court are get to be the new um, fundamental laws of the land. Um, and so this brings me, you know, so that's, that's sort of part of the point is like, you know, People, everyone's dunking on Clarence Thomas for his concurring opinion in, in, um, um, in Dobbs 
where you know he says we need to revisit some of these other substantive due process cases and lots of people are you know um saying that he necessarily that he obviously therefore doesn't want the outcomes that came from those cases now he may not i don't know but um you know i remember i think it was the first time i ever wrote about clarence thomas it was certainly one of the first things i ever got really animated about Clarence Thomas in the early 90s when I think it was his first year on the bench he had a ruling that all of the sort of liberals on the Washington Post op-ed page went nuts about um because he ruled that some guy who got some inmate in prison who got beat up um by guards that it didn't violate some constitutional right uh, you know, maybe it was cruel, unusual punishment. I can't remember. And part of Thomas's explanation of his vote on this was that, you know, first of all, the guards were like fired. They were punished. They could be criminally prosecuted. There are all sorts of things that you can do to uh, uh, sanction such behavior, or not sanction, you know, sanction is one of those annoying words that means both. Um, it means itself and and the opposite, but we don't need to get into that again. Um, something can be bad and still be constitutional, and something can be good and still be unconstitutional. And this was the point that that Thomas was making, and that he was saying, "Look, you know, you can send these guys to these guards to prison, but that what they did does not violate the Constitution." um in the way that the plaintiffs suggested and this infuriated people and i always thought this was exactly right like and i'm sure that clarence thomas was against guards beating up prisoners just as a general principle um but he was saying look you're asking the constitution to do something that it doesn't do and uh when i hear so or look on twitter at all these people freaking out about what the supreme court has done in the last couple of weeks I get that they don't like the policy outcomes that their their pr policy preferences are entirely defensible whether I agree with them or not they're entirely defensible mainstream legitimate whether it's on the climate change or on abortion or on guns um I think all of their positions are for the sake of our purposes here reasonable and defensible even if I have my disagreements with them but that doesn't but it seems to me that's the only argument that you get about the about the supreme court and the constitution is that they don't like the policy outcomes and um that to me is not an argument about what the supreme court is supposed to do what the constitution is supposed to do you know i don't like it that when i land on boardwalk or boardwalk or park place when my daughter owns it that i'm going to be i'm going to you know i'm going to have to sell off my hotels just to pay the um the rent on hers but i don't blame monopoly for it i don't blame her for correctly interpreting the instructions about it because those are the rules which brings me to like my second point about the uh what frustrates me about all of this stuff and i wrote about this on wednesday you know a little bit to listen to elizabeth warren and all these people they think that somehow democracy is being destroyed when the supreme court says 
to the dem most democratic branches of government, both at the state and federal level, you get to decide this. This is your decision, right? If you, if you want the EPA to regulate carbon emissions, write a law um, that tells them to do that. If you think abortion should be legal from um, in, you know, conception to uh, delivery, write a law at the state level, at the federal level. I mean, you give it a whirl. I mean, I, again, other constitutional, constitutional issues can kick in, but that's a different argument. The point is, give it a shot. Write something down. As, assert your authority. Take responsibility for public policy. And it is amazing how many people think that, I mean, it's very frustrating reading, you know, uh, people like Robert Reich and Elizabeth Warren and all of the 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 usual suspects and sort of left-wing legal journalism and, and political journalism and how they can't conceive of the idea they can't they can't glimpse the reality that or the distinction <laughs> they can't glimpse the distinction that when the Supreme Court tells Congress you can do whatever you want um, you just got to write a law authorizing it. But that is not the same thing as the Supreme Court choosing what policies to impose. It's just not. You know, the, the, so far, the conservative, quote unquote, judicial activism hasn't been a mirror of liberal judicial activism. The liberal judicial activism is legislating from the bench. There are exceptions, I'm sure, but like in the context of the last three weeks or month, the conservative majority, with the exception, you could argue about the gun case, but in the in the EPA case, in the abortion case, um, they're not legislating from the bench. They're not saying what the policy should be. Um, in the gun case, they're not saying what the policy should be. They're just saying what what one aspect of the policy can't be you can you know in 43 you can the gun decision the supreme court said you can do it the way new york you can do it the way 43 other states do it but you just can't do it the way you've been doing it that is not a rewriting of 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 gun laws you know it's not an imposition of what charlie cooks or you know uh, for that matter, Ted Nugent's preferred gun policies are. It's just simply saying you got to follow the rules if you're gonna if you're gonna regulate this stuff. And on the EPA stuff, it's the court is just saying unelected agencies can't go off in really big, bold, important new policy directions without a buy your leave by Congress. Congress needs to tell the people via their elective representatives need to write a law that says, hey, EPA, do this. And I, I really, I mean, I think I've been pretty out there on the both sides-ism stuff for a lot of things in the last few years. And um, I don't take any of it back or anything like that. But on this one, I just think the... The conservatives, at least you know, the conservatives I respect and that I count myself among, just have it have it right, and the left has it wrong. 
And um, even on abortion, you know, the what would you know what would have solved this whole thing a long time ago? Same thing with with with, with guns is is if the left hadn't been so complacent in thinking that its political prospects were going to be um, good for the foreseeable future and that they could just simply rely on the Supreme Court to do everything. Um, if they had worked a fraction as hard as the right worked to create the Federalist Society, to create um, a whole pipeline of principled originalist judges, of the politics that went into getting them on the bench, to getting them in the Senate, getting them in, you know, all over the place. Um, if they had put anything like that kind of effort into, I don't know, a constitutional amendment uh, on guns, on whatever. I mean, like, I, I might oppose various constitutional amendments that the left puts, would want to put up. But if they get a constitutional amendment, um, that's it. Whatever the amendment says, that's what the Constitution says. And I can live with that. Um, certainly, I can live with anything that, that could get in there. And people say, well, that would be too hard. It would take too much time, whatever. These are the same people right now who are, who are caterwauling about how the, re how the right spent 50 years pursuing this strategy um, and how smart they were about it. Well, you know, get to it. And one of the great things about amending the Constitution, which is the only way to actually breathe new meaning into the Constitution, um, is that it's sufficiently hard and requires sufficient buy-in from so many different political jurisdictions and stakeholders that the process of getting it across the finish line is also a process that um, persuades people. Right? It's like you have to actually have arguments in the trenches for a long time to get a constitutional amendment across the finish line. And that's part of the design. Um, anyway, I'm sure I'll come back to some of this, but I, I, I get very, very frustrated that everyone who's talking about how so many of the dangers posed to, there are all these dangers posed to our democracy and our democracy is so fragile. And the Supreme Court is just basically saying, throwing Congress and state legislatures the car keys and say, go wherever you want. Just don't ask us to do it for us. Do it for you. Um, and everyone's like, oh, that's so undemocratic. That is like democracy. That is, that is like literally saying, you got to do this stuff democratically. Don't ask us to do it. And, um, and it just, it's, it, it, anyway. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills sometimes on this stuff. And then you have, okay, so we'll get back to the rank punditry stuff. So Joe Biden said yesterday that he wants um, an exception to the filibuster to codify Roe. And, um, and then when he was asked to explain, when the White House was asked to explain that, he says, uh, wants an exception to the filibuster for rules and for for legislation and enshrining um the right to privacy or privacy rights um now look i'm i'm in favor of privacy rights uh i think some of the stuff coming out of texas about sodomy laws and all that kind of stuff is bonkers um and i don't want those guys 
to like replace federal society types as judges or any, or even legislatures, leg, legislators or any of that kind of stuff. But um, Biden's position is just lame. It's just lame to say, you know, um, I want an exception to the filibuster for the stuff I like. It's kind of like, you know, I was joking with a friend of mine. It's sort of like saying, um, I'm all in for, monogam for monogamous marriage unless there's a shot with a really hot chick. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just not how it's supposed to work. You, you gotta, you know, just like, just as it works with, with the constitutional amendment, if you want to get stuff passed, you got to make an argument. Now you can make an argument for getting rid of the filibuster entirely. And I understand those arguments and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, to say that, you know, you want to get rid of the filibuster for just the sorts of legislation that you think are really important. And he, he listed privacy rights and voting rights. It's just really lame. It doesn't convince anybody. And I just, I also love this way, this sort of monarchical way we talk about our presidents, where if you follow the coverage, so many people are just simply saying, it's a huge deal that he supports this, as if that changes something. You know, another of these sort of Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy kind of things where I support this. Um, that somehow is going to resonate out into the universe and transmogrify matter or minds uh, and in some significant way. It just, it's, it's all theatrics, it's all performative. I understand that he, as a political necessity, he needs to do it, but um, it's also just sort of silly. Um, oh, one, one last thing on this, David, on this, this uh, federalism, uh, Federalist Society, conservative judges stuff. Um, I've just basically come to the position that if you, um, go out of your way to attack David French on Twitter, um, uh, without, you know, in a, the sort of mobby, uh, fan service kind of way, I, I, I'm just inclined to not want to have anything to do with you for the rest of my life. Um, and it's not because I'm like, I, like David's a good friend of mine. He's a colleague. I'm, I'm proud to know him i think he's right about a lot of things um but it's really not like a wild-eyed defensiveness of david i have my disagreements with david and i got no problem with people who disagree with david um on the merits but the effort uh, led by Sorab and these guys to turn him into a symbol of all that is wrong with you know uh america liberal democratic capitalism conservatism christianity i think it's just it's it's grotesque and stupid in a really interestingly stupid way. Um, it's it's got sort of this weird kind of like witch hunty McCarthyite kind of vibe to it because it's just sort of starts with the assumption. It's 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 kind of a more it's more like Mean Girls kind of thing. It's like everyone in the cafeteria just knows that it's okay to make fun of somebody um, because they're all in on it. And it doesn't really matter whether it's justified to make fun of somebody. It's it's just this catty, bitchy little thing that uh, some people have got bought into. And so it was like really interesting in the wake of the Dobbs decision, how a lot of those kinds of people just, you know, here's this, here's these people who claim that they're passionate pro-lifers. 
There are these people who claim that this is a massive victory, not just for the pro-life cause, but for them specifically because they were the ones who defended Trump and fought for Trump and got him and, and stood by him to get three justices on the Supreme Court. And like the political base stealing, uh, intellectual base stealing and all that is just enormous. Um, the historical revisionism is enormous. Um, uh, you know, like the people who, who are making these claims, uh, it's not like they took principled positions condemning Trump when he was wrong on this, that, or the other thing, but said, look, everybody, we got to stick it out with this, this thug doofus president because um, of the Supreme Court. They were all in on supporting Trump, regardless of what he did, what he said, how he said it. If he had appointed um, uh, bad judges from uh, that weren't on the list that he had to agree to, they would have supported him. You know, if they tried to, if he tried to get Janine Pirro on the court, most of them would have supported it. And, um, um, but it was really interesting. You know, so the, this historic thing happens. And, uh, you know, and people like Molly Hemingway and these others, you know, like, oh, David French has no right to celebrate this. Um, David French was like, was a, in the, in the trenches, uh, you know, you know, abortion rights. I mean, I, I mean, a pro-life lawyer and activist for decades is, and no right to celebrate this because he didn't like Trump and I have no right to sell. I mean, I got a lot of this. BS too, um, and put aside the stupidity of all that, um, and also just the false assumption that David and I are exactly on the same page and all these issues. That none of that stuff matters. It just—it's really telling that when you um, have this world historical victory for the things that you claim to care most about as a moral and religious issue. Your first instinct is to go mean girl in the cafeteria against David French. Um, it just kind of suggests to me um, that you know the pro-life part of this really wasn't the most important thing, um, and it's just it's so sad and weird and lame. And um, but I bring it up because you know David wrote this really great uh, piece about abortion, about about the overturning of Roe. Um, um, in a, you know, from a pro-life perspective, the, the Sunday, um, newsletter and, uh, you know, right after the decision and, uh, a friend of mine, I won't give away his name, uh, wrote an interesting email. I didn't get permission to read this out loud, but I think, um, I think it's going to be okay. Uh, he sent it to me and Steve. He says, like everyone else, I read David's column on Sunday with great interest. I think it misses a much bigger point I hope he can make. He won. I'm not talking about overturning Roe. We all won that. I'm talking about the famous French Sorab debate about whether we should work with it within the judicial system or not to, um, or not to affect conservative change. No one has called out the Catholic integralists on being very, very wrong here on the most important issue. It was precisely by growing federal society babies, licking envelopes for barely pro-life comb-over senators, heeding the Machiavellian McConnell path, and forcing Trump to stay one track 
on judges that we won. It took 50 years. In that time, our batting average went up as the judges got better and the moment got smarter and the movement got smarter. Reagan was one for two. George H.W. Bush was one for one. Talking about Supreme Court appointments. We lost the net seat with Clinton. W was 1.5 to, um, <laughs> to 0.5. Um, and uh, Trump was 3-0. and uh, And he says that should give a shot in the arm to David's worldview. And I think he's right. My friend's right here. You know, David made the, you know, it was the post-liberal mega nationalist types who were talking about how courts need to rule um, based upon the result conservatives want, not on any, um, uh, you know, strict fidelity to text or to, to liberal process or procedure. And it was David who said, no, uh, you know, the most important stuff that we want, you have to do it the right way, which is the hard way. And David was right. And so he does get to celebrate. Even if, you know, I mean, like even the Babylon Bee did that stupid, stupid stuff about David. It's just really pathetic. Um, oh, so like, okay. So like last week I talked about consequentialism, which some people really dug and some people like, eh, but that's fine. I'm sure the eh people will out, uh, outnumber the diggers on this podcast so far. Cause it's, 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 um, it's effulgent with mediocrity as far as I can tell. Um, but, um, it bothered me all week that the point that the, 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 the hinge point that I wanted to make about how, um, the hinge point I wanted to make was, but which I think I did explain, but it was funny, like, uh, Kevin Williamson sent me an email saying, you know, your argument against consequentialism was very consequent consequentialist. Um, cause I did all that stuff about red lights and green lights and whatever. And he was right. But, and I don't, I don't, I don't have any problem with that, you know, critique, which was made in pretty lighthearted way. But there was this thing I wanted to explain that I don't, I just didn't feel like I explained it right. Cause I forgot this bit from Peter Singer's interview on that philosophy bites podcast where he had said at one point, I haven't gone back to listen to it, but he had said at one point that it used to be, uh, you know, this kind of utilitarian and then, and now he's this other kind of utilitarian, a hedonistic utilitarian and the other, the old kind of utilitarian that he used to be, oh, pre, he called it a preference, uh, utilitarian, which meant that you should honor people's preferences. And he's changed his position to say, no, 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 preferences don't matter. What matters is your state of consciousness and whether it's a, a pleasant one or not. And he uses an example of what he used to believe. He used to, he used to believe, and I might be mangling the example slightly, but he used to believe that a, um, that if your preference was that your money be spent a certain way, um, your family should honor that preference when you die. And he says, he no longer believes that because once you die, um, you'll have no idea whether or not your preferences were honored. And I think th this really encapsulates what bothered me about this whole thing. And I just, it bothered me that I didn't bring it up, or at least I don't think I brought it up. 
I sometimes will bring up stuff on here and then 10 minutes later uh, be like, did I, did I remember to mention that? Um, but here's the problem, right? And I got into a little bit of this with um, uh, Megan McArdle in a roundabout way uh, when I talked about like sort of dynamic scoring for cultural um, politics. Uh, let's say we live in a society where everybody believes what Peter Singer argues about consequentialism is correct and they they try to act on it so it's one thing in the narrow circumstances of your own life where like you promise your father that you're going to give a million dollars to um some basset hound rescue organization but uh once he dies uh you don't you don't give the million dollars um you keep it for yourself and in Singer's uh, example, uh, everybody wins. Your dad goes to his uh, final reward, which according to Singer is um, entropy decay and, and, and turning back into soil because he doesn't believe in anything after you die. Um, uh, but you go, you know, you, you, you wind up your life on this planet believing that your wishes are going to be honored and that makes you happy. So, that's good. And, uh, and now you, you get the million dollars and maybe you'll give a hundred thousand to the Basset Hounds. Cause I think singer would definitely think that's a, not a bad cause. Um, but you spend the rest on yourself and that makes you happy. And so it's win-win. And the point I was trying to grope at here is that that example cannot live in a vacuum. If we live in a society where everybody sees things that way, the dad isn't going to abide by his son's promises that he'll spend his money the way he wants him to. Because everyone will be living in a world where they assume other people think it's okay to lie if they like the outcome or the consequences of the lie. And I think this is one of these things where sort of where, um, and I've been reading a bit of Oakshot lately, um, or rereading a bit of Oakshot lately. Um, and you know, his big problem with rationalism and politics, and I might write about some of this today. I don't know. Um, you know, pure rationalism in things cultural never ever works because it doesn't take into effect sort of the multiplier effects of, of, of sociology and human psychology. And so, you know, you can have, you can come up with this great ethical system about how people are supposed to behave and how you're supposed to make decisions, but it doesn't, these systems don't take into effect how other people will respond to the incentives of exactly that kind of system. And if you take down or you diminish the moral sanction against lying to be one of pure consequentialism, then you also inf increase the amount of distrust in any given society. And if promises, um, verbal promises, uh, implicit promises, the promises that are inherent to family obligation and friendship that sometimes don't have to be articulated 
um, or even explicit verbal promises, right? Um, if all of those sort of sinewy things that make social trust work at the organic grand, ground level can no longer be relied upon because the rational and ethical thing to do is to simply lie to be have pleasing results, then you lose trust in society. And when you lose trust in society, um, one of the things, there are lots of bad things that happen when you lose trust in society, but one of the things that you lose is that, um, uh, is that you become more legalistic, right? Because if, as uh, informal modes of enforcing obligation shrink, formal modes of enforcing obligation will increase. It's just that simple. If you live in a society where you just don't think a handshake will ever do, um, you know, like no handshake deals, got to have it on paper, um, more people have it on paper. And that may be fine in the business context, but there's just all sorts of things in, in life that are the equivalent of handshake deals. You know, I mean, like if you've ever been a parent or a child, and I assume most of you have been child children, um, you know, among the most powerful um, arguments a kid can make against a parent is, but you promised, but you said so. And that comes with all sorts of obligation because parents understand that if they say, if they did make a promise, then they have a long-term interest in keeping that promise, even if making that promise in the first place may have been a mistake. And sometimes parents have to go back on promises, and that sucks. And I, I don't know a parent out there worth their salt. Um, I actually, frankly, like if you're a parent and you go back on a promise, and enjoy it, <laughs> um, then, you know, I'm not saying that child services should take your kid away, um, but maybe you should set out a few plays. You know, it's a terrible thing when you have to do that to kids and they have, you know, they have their expectations built up. And sometimes as they get older, you can reason with them and you say, here's why, you know, I'm going to honor the promise, but I can't honor, honor, the, I can't honor the promise on the timeline that we talked about or that kind of but to just simply say to go back on your word with your kids is a terrible thing to go back on your word with your friends is a terrible thing to go back on your word with your spouse is a terrible thing. And, you know, adults can, you know, make arguments and provide context for, you know, exceptions. But as a general rule, we live in a society where you're supposed, and I say a society, pretty much any group of people, um, that merits the term society works this way in one way or, or, or another. It's, you know, this kind of thing is one of those human universals. And so like an ethical system that says, no, 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 like those kinds of things really don't enter into it um, in your decision making, um, even if they might be right in the, the examples that they use, um, those examples don't exist in a vacuum. And once you start putting these things, you know, into real world practice at scale, um, things go, you know, south. And so the reason I'm thinking about this a lot, and I, I, I kind of like to write about this too, is that, and I sort of ended the Wednesday G file about a lot of this, um, is that 
the main reason, I mean, there are a bunch of reasons why we can't have nice things, but the main reason why we have such elite political dysfunction in this country is that too many people, I don't know the number, you don't know the, no one knows the number. I don't know, I don't think it's a majority, but it doesn't need to be a majority. Um, a significant number of, of actors um, no longer put um, the health and longevity and long-term interest of the system of liberal democratic capitalism, rule of law, whatever you know, labels you want to put on, they no longer put that as a priority um, um, in their decision-making when their decisions matter. It is so easy to do the right thing in the easy cases. It's so easy to make the right vote on the, when it's an easy vote. You know, this is uh, Cicero, C.S. Lewis, I keep forgetting, you know, talks about how courage is the most important of all virtues because it, it comes into play at the testing point for all the other virtues. It is easy to be, um, it is easy not to steal when you don't see anything that you want. It is easy not to cheat on your wife or your husband when you're not attracted to anybody else. It is easy to take the principal position in Congress when it's exactly what your base and all your voters want. The, 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 the determinant of what kind of character you have is when you, when you, when you see the easy path, and I, don't to, and I don't mean to sound like Al Pacino at the end of a Scent of a Woman, but you know, when, you, when you come to a crossroads and you see the easy path and the right path, and you take the easy path because the right path was too damn hard, as, as Al Pacino says, um, that's the test. You know, Liz Cheney in her, her uh, debate in Wyoming last night, I saw a clip this morning on the news, you know, she says to the audience, look, there's something you need to know about me, that I will never put the interests of my party ahead of the interests of my nation or my loyalty to the Constitution. This should be like the most cliched, trite political pablum you could offer. And in, and, and in good times, it kind of is. But for Cheney, she means it seriously. And she, do, and she should, and she means it courageously. Because what her party, certainly in Wyoming, certainly in this context, wants her to do is side with someone and a cause and a moment that did not put the country first, did not put the Constitution first. And it required courage in the moment, right? This is my point about like the friggin' glorification and lionization of John Dean these days, um, where everyone's talking about, you know, these, you know, these witnesses who did the right thing when it mattered being like John Dean. John Dean did not do the right thing when it mattered. He did the right thing when he had no other choice and wanted to get the best plea, plea bargain 
possible. He still went to jail for what he did. And there's very good reason to believe that he, he has lied for his entire career about the scope of what he did during Watergate. And he's brought out all the time as this courageous conscience of a nation whistleblower guy. It's BS, right? I mean, like, it's a little bit like what Michael Cohen, uh, Trump's lawyer, has done. Uh, although I get the vibe from him that he's, he's more sincere about some of this stuff. Um, like he kind of woke up from a, um, you know, he kind of got deprogrammed. Um, I still don't think he's the sharpest tool in the shed, but like, you know, he flipped on Trump when, you know, when he was facing jail time and he flipped on Trump when, uh, you know, Trump threw him to the wolves, you know, that's, that's not courageous whistleblowing. And I'm not, I don't want to beat up on the guy because at least he's paid his dues, um, and, 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 and showed some contrition, but, um, you know, it's not what Brad Raffensperger did. It's not what, um, you know, Gabe Sterling or, or even Pat Cipollone, you know, who by everything I've seen did the right thing when it mattered or Mike Pence who did the right thing when it mattered. I can get very mad at Mike Pence for how he behaved in the four years prior to January 6th. Um, I could probably over beers, get into a nice argument with Liz Cheney about how she behaved in the four years prior to January 6th. Um, but when it mattered the most, they did the right thing. They're doing the right thing. Well, I don't know if Pence is currently doing the right thing, but like Liz Cheney is doing the right thing. And this is the thing is that it's so easy when um, you have this outsized confidence that the system can handle your personal corruption, right? Um, it's sort of like, you know, uh, you know, cops who don't take massive bribes, but they'll take little bribes because they know that, you know, there's no harm and the system can work and blah, 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 blah. Um, maybe they'll pocket a little of the drug money that they find in a bust, but not all of it. And, um, um, but other than that, they're basically sort of honest and all that kind of stuff. Like those sorts of calculations, which I think are probably rational and correct in this and in, in, during, you know, a lot of your life. Um, uh, but if everybody had that attitude, the system can't work, right? And um, and what people so what people do in, in normal times is uh they assume that the system is sufficiently, you know, what, what they call it, anti-fragile, that it's su sufficiently supple that you can bend the rules a little bit for yourself um, and it'll be okay. And I am the first to plead guilty that I do this about all sorts of little things in life, you know, speeding and, you know, with parking and, you know, or all, I, I could probably come up with uh, a whole bunch of things where, you know, uh, certainly when I was younger, where I just, you know, uh, bend the rules a little bit. What's the harm? Who cares? And I, and, and, and to be honest, I'm fine with that in your normal life and all that kind of stuff. But when you assume, when you start saying that kind of thing is okay, when you start saying that, that as an ethical matter, there's nothing wrong with it. 
and you don't provide a limiting principle for where you can go wrong, that's where you start to erode the system. It's like this, um, you know, I, I used to write about hidden law a lot. I don't know if it's still the official term of art. There are all these other terms of art for this kind of stuff. Informal law, um, you know, uh, cultural norms. I don't, I, you know, it depends whether you're talking to a sociologist or a philosopher or um, an economist. Even institutions are basically just, you know, rules. Um, but you know, I remember years ago, um, Jonathan Rausch wrote some really interesting stuff about hidden law, and I started writing about it in response. And um, and one of the arguments back in the day was that you know because everyone was talking about how do you handle adultery in the wake of the Clinton Lewinsky stuff, and it is absolutely true. I think this was Roush's point, but if it's not, I apologize. It was somebody, it was a lot of people's point. People were arguing, look, we have this unwritten rule in society that we do not pay close attention and make a big deal about adultery. Um, um, who are we to judge? It's for the fan, it's for the couple themselves or the family themselves to work it out. Um, don't make a stink about it. Yada, yada, yada. And, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Don't get me wrong. But part of my point was, yes, that's true. So long as the parties involved try to keep it private and secret. It is one thing to um, commit adultery, um, which I never have, and I'm very much against. I just, I just sort of realized that I've, I've meant, mentioned cheating on your wife a couple times on here. This is not projection or anything. Don't worry. Um, but uh, um, it is one thing to, with shame and secrecy and um, subterfuge, you know, cheat on someone that you love. It's another thing to do it publicly. Publicly humiliating your spouse is evil in a way that is additional to the evilness of the just the, the basic betrayal of trust. Um, because the the doing it publicly is humiliating um, and and vicious. And similarly with politicians, they can have all sorts of sins. All of us have sins. Politicians have more than most. Um, and so long as they're not breaking the law, if we don't know about it, okay. But if they start bragging about it, if they, if they get caught, like Eric Greitens getting caught, you know, tying a woman up and blackmailing her, she should, he should be um, barred from public life in any meaningful way for the rest of his life, or at, le at the very least, until he has a true moment of contrition, <laughs> you know, because we believe in forgiveness in this country. But he owns his psychopathy. Um, and the Republican Party is is beclowning itself in Missouri for even letting him run in the primaries. Um, yeah, Republican Party doesn't have political parties don't have to let people they don't want run in their primaries. Um, but I'm not going to get into that all over again. The point is is that there's hit, there's a lot of flex in the culture for private violation of norms um, that don't reach the uh, 
the level of criminality. Um, and even, you know, some criminality, like, you know, it is assault to punch someone in the face. But at a bar, if someone is like yelling all sorts of racial epithets um, or being a grotesque um, pig towards women and some dude gets up and punches them in the face, uh, technically he's at fault. It was just speech, yada, yada, yada. Um, but most people in the room are going to be like, he had it coming. They're not going to call the police about it, particularly if it's just like one punch. The guy on the floor can press charges if he wants, because that's someplace where we sort of leap out of the informal world. But we have, we have a certain level of tolerance for actual criminal stuff, um, that if it conforms with sort of natural law, hidden law, cultural norms and customs and that kind of thing. And, and that's as it should be. There should be all sorts of, you know, beneficial, um, microbes in the in the biome of the body politic for this kind of stuff that don't follow you know strict law um but once that kind of stuff becomes public once it becomes a public norm violation once you no longer are doing it essentially on the down low the stakes change because all of a sudden now you have this dynamic scoring thing where people see what you're what you're doing and they think you're setting an example and this is one of my great problems with the Trump presidency is what a, just a terrible example he set for how to behave in public life. Forget whether he, you know, committed an attempted, you know, self coup. He did forget all of that kind of stuff. He's just a shocking sore loser and, and vain and, and a bully. And that's not how, you know, and it's, it's not fine that he was like that in the private sector, but what are you going to do about it in the private sector? But when he's on the public stage, it changes things. And, um, and I think that's in some ways the more lasting damage that he did to society than, than, you know, the stuff he did, uh, you know, leading up to, you know, January 6th. Oh, so I saw this thing by Putin, uh, where he, uh, uh, apparently someone said like Macron or, um, the pajama boy guy who runs Canada, um, Trudeau, uh, someone had said something at the G7, G7 summit about, you know, all of those shirtless shots of Putin, um, and said how, you know, something about the toxic, toxic masculinity of it or authoritarian, I don't know, something, something denigrating. And Putin's response was in part that to see any of those Western leaders um, uh, without a shirt on uh, would be disgusting. And he went on this tirade about like doing sports and, and, and exercise and uh, not abusing alcohol. And, um, but he was like, and look, he's right to a certain extent. I'm not going to throw any stones here, you know, but like Boris Johnson, you know, shirtless doesn't do, um, uh, probably does not do a lot for people who like the male form. I didn't want to be too gendered in that. Um, but like, <laughs> you know, uh, one has to wonder whether or not, you know, Putin has seen some of these, um, Scandinavian female leaders, uh, cause like some of them are sufficiently attractive to what we used to call the male gaze, um, that they could have only fans accounts. 
Um, and, uh, um, but I just, I, I found the whole sort of, I mean, this is what international diplomacy has descended to is, um, you know, Putin being the sort of like one of the, one of the gym rat bros talking about, you know, you know, it's going to, next he's going to be saying, you know, to Macron, do you even lift bro? Um, so I thought it was just kind of funny. Uh, what else do we want to talk about? I, I'm not even sure I should have talked about that. Um, I wish I had, oh, you know, I, I forgot, uh, you know, today's the first Friday of the month. I thought that June had 31 days in it. I'm bad. You are good. I apologize. But, um, so we should have done the, um, drive time thing today. Uh, we're going to push it off. I'm also next week going to, uh, start putting a bunch of shows in the can because the following week I'm going to be gone for a little bit. Very much looking forward to taking some time off. And, um, um, but they're going to be really good shows. I think, uh, no, uh, my friend Noah Rothman is coming on to talk about his new book, which everyone should get. Um, and also the next time I talk to you, it will be, uh, you know, we'll have July 4th will gone by and I figure we should talk about America just a tiny little bit. Um, I mean, I guess I got to some of this stuff about doing the right thing when it mattered, but, um, there was a recent poll out that I don't think was a really particularly good poll um, because the, the question was something like today, are you proud to be an American? And something like only 38% said they were extremely proud to be an American. Um, at the sufficient level of abstraction, I'm definitely part of the 38%. Um, but the reason, the problem with the, with the poll among other things was that was the word today because what it does is it, it conjures um people to think about okay what's going on in america right now um and that puts you in a sort of a political framework and a cultural framework and a contingent framework on the moment rather than on sort of the broader fundamentals and so i think if you'd asked the question just slightly differently you would have gotten more people saying they're extremely proud or proud to be an American. I mean, the overall number of people saying they're proud to be American was some sort of historic low. Um, and uh, I do find that depressing because you shouldn't take the bait. Um, but like, I don't know, if I had a kid who, uh, you know, just stole a car and crashed it through a supermarket window or something like that. And you ask me today, are you proud to be a Goldberg? I wouldn't think about the Goldbergs as a, you know, as a great entity, um, over time or anything like that. I would be like, no, I'm not very proud of being a Goldberg today. Um, and I think that's sort of the problem with the poll. Um, but if you just take two steps back, and you you take the poll as sort of as it's being misinterpreted right if you think it has to do with about america qua america then you're really just foolish not to be proud of this country um and that doesn't mean you can't criticize the country uh you know like there are lots of people that you can be proud of. And one of the reasons why you're proud of them, in fact, 
one of the main reasons why like parents are proud of their kids isn't because they just always do everything right. It's because they work at it because they had failures because they'd sort of they'd fallen down and they gotten back up and they fixed the problem. They worked the problem. They, they made amends for the problem. And, um, you know, this country, when people say, um, um, when people say this is a bad country or this is a country that we should, you know, not be proud of, it's, you know, who are they comparing it to? I mean, what, you know, if it's comparing it to the perfect, yeah, we're always going to fall short of the perfect. Um, you know, this is, again, I've been reading Oakshot lately, you know, this is, um, what he called the pursuit of perfection as the crow flies. If you think the measurement of a society and its moral standing is based upon how close it is to a perfect ideal or how fast it is going towards that perfect ideal, then, you know, what is it? Is it, is it Archimedes? arrow someone Zeno's arrow right the whole point of Zeno's arrow um in in Greek philosophy is that if you um measure the distance between the arrow and its destination in increments of half right sort of like um if it's only moving if it if it's only going in 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 segments of half right so it's 100 yards away and it goes 50 yards and then it goes 25 yards and then it goes 12.5 yards it will never ever reach its destination right it's a mathematical you know bit of bs technically because that's not how life works but that's how a lot of people's brains work is that whatever distance we are from perfection will always be infinite because you cannot be perfect and um and so measuring things against some utopian ideal in the future or in your head or on paper is 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 a recipe for folly but if you measure what this country is and the ideals it does try to move towards in fits and starts with many a failure um and and you look at what where the history that comes before america or before this moment in america this is a good country this is a country that has done enormous good in the world. This is a country to be proud of. And again, you can be critical of it. It's amazing. This is one of these things where like, again, people's heads go weird places when you say this is a good country or when you say you should be proud of this country, they immediately rush, um, you know, like tourists on the circle line when someone spots a whale you know, they rush to that side and say, but look at that whale of a problem or look at, you know, whatever. And you can do that for every country that ever existed anywhere in the world, even yes, Canada. Um, because countries are made up of human beings and human beings are a real work in progress. But this was the first country to seriously be founded. I don't want to say it's the only first country to ever be founded on an ideal. It's the first country to be successfully founded on an ideal, um, in part because it took human nature into account. But, you know, 
and those ideals, and this is something, you know, Barack Obama was, was pretty good on, you know, is that there was, there's a certain, you know, logic or algorithm in the founding principles of this country that, um, had to work themselves out over time. I'm not a Hegelian, but it was sort of like a dialectical process. And, um, you know, it's sort of like, uh, the oyster needs time to make the irritating piece of sand into a pearl. Um, the computer program needs time to render. Uh, there's, there's, you know, the, the, the conflict of hypocrisy in the American founding is what created was the irritant that created the pearl. It took time to work out the cognitive dissonance of the American founding. By which I mean, we started with these very lofty ideals about, you know, equality and the rights of man and universalism and all of these things. And we didn't apply them on the ground in reality. It was largely for, you know, white male landowners. Um, maybe not as much as like the, the modern day Charles Beard types say, but Sure, fine. For the sake of this generalization at the end of an hour-long podcast where I'm talking by myself to a microphone, uh, fine. Let's stipulate all of that stuff. Slavery was evil. Um, and it's really important to point out that slavery was evil. And it's really important to point out the hypocrisy of the American founding that tolerated that evil. And the, one of the reasons why it's really important to point it out is because we overcame it. You know, we, you know, I know it, a lot of jackwads love to make this point as a way to sort of like put their thumb in people's eyes. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not a valid point. The remarkable thing in the scope of human history about slavery in the United States isn't that we had it, it's that we got rid of it. The other thing that's remarkable about it is that it was so profoundly hypocritical for us to have it in the first place. There's nothing hypocritical about Russia having slaves. You know, I mean, serfs aren't technically slaves, but they're not far from it. Uh, the word Slav um, is at the root of, uh, you know, shares a root with slavery. Uh, there's nothing inherently hypocritical about Muslim countries having slaves. Um, there's nothing, you know, I mean, the Ottoman Empire had slaves forever. Uh, it was profoundly hypocritical for the United States to have slaves because we actually founded ourselves on these ideals and not just the ideals of universal human equality and all that kind of stuff, but like no taxation without representation, you know, the, the right to property, the right to, you know, the freedom of conscience, all of these things we deprived human beings of that's terrible, but it's terribleness lends itself to the moral accomplishment of getting rid of it, which is what we did in this country. And we did it at great human cost. And um, it is amazing how much, you know, the, the triumph of the North is erased and the resistance of the South is elevated by both um, sort of the, you know, the small, you know, the, the sort of white racist fringe, but also, uh, the left anti-racist um, tribe as well, because, you know, they want to talk about how, you know, I mean, I, I, 
if I have to read another piece that sort of suggests the South really won or whatever, um, or that nothing has changed um, in America, uh, you know, I'm going to start cutting myself again because it's just not true. It's not true. You know, there's just like, forget the legal stuff. Forget the fact that we amended the Constitution a few times to settle these questions. You know, forget all the Supreme Court cases. Forget the fact that we had a black president. Forget the fact that we have thousands of black elected officials across this country. Forget the fact that, you know, um, um, this country devotes an enormous amount of time and energy and resources towards being inclusive and, and promoting, you know, black participate participation in education and in politics and in business and all of these, forget all that kind of stuff. This country is just not very racist. It's just not. And we know this from social science data. We know this from our own lives. Um, this is not to say that there isn't racism in the country. Of course there is. And I think, you know, David French made this point a while back in one of the very first dispatch lives. Um, which I think is one of the first things about race stuff in a long time that sort of really sort of changed my thinking about some of it. And his point was that, you know, and he, he experiences all sorts of terrible things um, because he is in a, he is a, uh, a black daughter and, um, um, and his point was, you know, it was sort of a mathematical point. And sometimes mathematical points have really weirdly powerful moral resonance with me. Um, you know, it's like my stuff about federalism. I like to do it as a math thing because I think it sort of takes it out of the abstract in some weird way, even though math is technically abstract. Anyway, I'm getting distracted. Um, you know, David makes this point that, you know, just for the sake of argument, let's say 10% of the white population is racist. I think that's probably way too high if we're talking about, uh, it depends on the population, depends where you are, and it depends what you mean by racist, and it depends whether or not we're talking about people's interior thought processes or their actions, right? Because there are lots of people who have uncharitable views about all sorts of groups who, do, who don't do anything about it. And if they don't do anything about it, and they don't tell anyone about it, what are you going to do? You can't get inside other people's heads. But let's just say for the sake of the, say for the, sake of the math problem or the example uh, that it's 10%. That means that 90% um, of the white people that a black person interacts with on any given day aren't going to be racist. And again, obviously, it depends where we're talking about and all that stuff. And these are just numbers to explain the idea. Um, so if 90% of the people they run into um, aren't racist, that means one in 10 of the people they do run into, white people they run into, are racist. And when you start counting up the number of interactions you have in a given day or given week or given month, 10% is a huge friggin' number. You know, if one in 10 people um, showed me some sign of anti-Semitism, I would think anti-Semitism is a massive problem in this country. And there are, there are times, um, usually when some troll thing gets activated or there's some bad Twitter campaign against me or um, whatever, there are times when one in 10 of my emails are anti-Semitic. But normally, it's really more like 0.1% of my emails are anti-Semitic. Um, 
And, um, um, and what's so, I mean, we don't need to get into weeds about all that. It's a depressing thing when it gets out of hand. Um, but like, it just tells you something about those people that they think that like, this is the way to come at me. Um, you know, they see this super Jewy name and they're like, aha, this is who he is because this is how I view people with super Jewy names. But my point is, is that in life, if you have anything close to those kind, that number of interactions, it's going to change your view of everything. All you need is like, I mean, how many bad interactions do you need with somebody at the DMV or at the post office? Um, never mind the IRS before you think you know what all government bureaucrats are like, right? I mean, how many bad experiences do you have flying before you um, make sweeping judgments about flying? And so I can't remember now how I got onto this point, but my point is, yeah, there are there's still real racism and the and and being pissed off about bigotry and all the historical and present day. It's all legitimate. But at the same time, I mean, just go look at the number of people, number of black people, number of white people who are marrying black people or white people. Depend, you know, the, the interracial marriages are through the roof in this country, and it's fine by me. I mean, I you know, it's great. Um, I, you know, I've had this argument. I've I've had friends, you know, when they were asking for advice about getting marriage and all this kind of stuff. Is you know, my point of view, and and they're different perfectly legitimate points of view out there. Um, you know, I mean, for some people, uh, you know, you got to marry, if you're Jewish, you got to marry a Jewish person. Totally get it. Not my position, but I totally respect that position for among observant Jews. Um, uh, for some people being a conservative means it be, you're crazy to marry a liberal. I disagree with that, but I also get it. Like just the idea of constantly, like in my line of work, it would be my line of work, mine and my wife's line of work. It'd be really hard to spend our days if we just fundamentally disagreed about, you know, all of this stuff. I get it. But my basic view about all this is to each his own. You don't marry categories, you marry people. And um, when you marry people, they fit some of your preconceived notions about what the kind of categories you cared about. And sometimes they don't. And, um, but the heart wants what the heart wants and you have to make a decision about, you know, what makes you happy. And, and, um, so I couldn't care less about people about intermarriage. I think it's one of the great things about this country that it is so popular. And it, I think it, it kind of beclowns so many of the people talking about how racist this country is. Um, because if you just look on the ground, I, I think it's fair to say that if you are willing to make babies with somebody of a different race, you're probably not racist towards that race. Um, certainly make babies within the context of marriage and share your resources in a home and raise them. And I think that says something wonderful about this country because that would be unimaginable even 50 years ago, the rates of intermarriage in this country. But so would basically all the indicators are good. And I'm kind of sad I, I went off on this tangent because part of the problem is, is like racism isn't the only racial attitudes, which again, I think are so much better than people think they are, right? 
But racial attitudes is not the only item on a moral checklist for a, a society or, or, frankly, a person. I mean, you can put a lot of weight on it. That's fine. That's a defensible position. But this country isn't just about its history of, of race relations. And I'm, again, I'm not trying to minimize any of that stuff. I'm just trying to say that, you know, this country did a lot of other good things. It liberated Europe. Um, it did more for the relief of man's estate, as Francis Bacon would put it, in terms of technological innovation, in terms of feeding the poor, um, in terms of prolonging and enriching life and life expectancy than any society by far in all of human history. It has done more to alleviate poverty than any country in human history. And, um, and it has done more to in, uh, in, instantiate in law and custom and tradition notions of, of freedom and human dignity than almost any other country. I mean, like, I don't know, you make an argument about some other countries, but a lot of those countries wouldn't be what they are were it not for, you know, the existence of the United States of America and the example of the United States of America. We produce fantastic cultural things. We're a good and decent people. Um, yeah, there are a lot of boneheaded people out there right now, and there are a lot of people who aren't being their best selves. But this is a great and glorious place. And, um, and if you don't teach people that why they should be proud of it, um, you're going to let all of the arguments about why you should hate it or not be proud of it or not care about it fill that void. Um, or you're going to let the really the, the dumbest, nastiest arguments for why you should like, the, like this country win. And that's the thing that sort of vexes me the most about so much of the stuff on the right is, you know, they wrap, some of these people wrap themselves up in, in this language of patriotism um, and love of country and love of constitution. And I don't buy it because the, 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 the politics and the attitudes and the behaviors that flow from these alleged, you know, uh, commitments are also ugly and illiberal. Um, and, you know, and in some cases, undemocratic and unconstitutional. Um, you know, like I don't want, you know, the Marjorie Taylor green definition of nationalism, which is this Christian nationalism thing, which I think, I literally think I could make a better case for Christian nationalism than she could, or than a lot of the people who are, um, uh, promoting it because I actually understand the history of the argument and waded into it a lot. And I could pass a Turing test and making the case for it. Obviously, I reject it. But what I really just don't want is for that kind of militaristic, tribal, nasty, ethno-nationalist or, or theo-nationalist sort of definitions of patriotism, which are basically just sort of populist will to power, will to power garbage. I don't want those things to replace the big-hearted patriotic definitions of what it means to love your country and to support and defend the system that it was set up by the, you know, the instruction manual that it was set up by. That's, you know, that's the, 
I mean, and I don't mean this in a partisan way, but that's the natural home for conservatism because conservatism is all about conserving what is best and what is beautiful. Conservatism is about, you know, as you've all liked to say, it's about gratitude. And it's about saying, what are the things that I am most grateful for about this country, this society, this, this, this time that I was born into that I want to pass along to the future. It is the natural conservative orientation to be patriotic in that sense, particularly in America, because what we're trying to conserve is in many ways a radical departure from all of human history. And people have heard me do this spiel, you know, I'm not going to get into my book, but that's the point of my book. And, and that's the thing that, you know, I'm sort of in politics at the end of the day, I'm probably most passionate about is, you know, like I can do the whole, you know, what patriotism means to me kind of thing. And I'll, I'll read you a little Coolidge because I want to make it a tradition around 4th of July. But, um, I can do all that stuff. I've been doing that for five years now, six years now, ever since I wrote that book or even before with the rise of Trump. Um, but at a really just at a more basic level, um, you know, putting aside the creedal arguments, putting aside, you know, these are the important texts and all that kind of stuff. You know, there is a fundamental goodness about what the best version of Americans, because there are some bad versions of Americans. I'm not going to deny that, but the best version of what it means to be an American is, um, such a fantastic departure from what it meant to be a normal human being for most of human history, because what it meant to be an American sort of central to this idea of being an American is taking people as you find them of not immediately assigning them to members of a class or a race or some, uh, or a religion or some other group, the whole like distillation of the best version of Americans is to let people live their lives and judge them by their, their behaviors and their actions and to how they treat you and how they treat other people and not judge them by some abstract theory or concept that lets you off the hook for making moral judgments, right? It's the consummate laziness of the medieval mind or the racist mind, or even the nationalist mind that, or the identity politics mind that gets to say, I dislike this category of people. And therefore anybody who who's falls into this category, I get to make moral judgments about without talking to them without dealing with them in any way, without looking at the specific specificity of their own lives, because I'm letting the category do all the work for me. It's a profound laziness and it's utterly and totally natural. It's what our brains want to do. It's what all sorts of isms tell us to do. Oh, he's a member of the bourgeoisie. He can be hung with the rest of them. It doesn't matter if he's not guilty of anything, right? Um, oh, he's black. He doesn't get to vote. He doesn't, you know, it's that sort of thing, which is this unbelievable, unbelievable laziness of categorical thinking, um, that the American culture and the American experiment works against. And that is this just unbelievably wonderful and glorious thing. And we have exported it 
as a philosophical concept. We have exported it as a cultural concept. We have exported it as a as as um, an ideal around the world, and there are a bunch of people who hate it because they like categorical thinking. They like, you know, to judge people as groups rather than as individuals. They also like to live as part of groups rather than as individuals. And that's fine and that's natural. And there are a zillion places around the globe that you can do that. And there are places in America where you can do that. But the great and glorious thing about this country is that as a culture and as a society and as a legal system that had, that had to spend two centuries working out some of these things, we went a different way. And we said that you, you, you know, that the individual is sovereign, that we are captains of ourselves. And, you know, perfectly legitimate arguments that some of that stuff has gone too far and that we need to sort of, you know, uh, bolster or juice up the communitarian or Republican, small r Republican aspects of American life. I'm very sympathetic to that. Can't tell you how many times we've talked about that on this podcast. But I still love the, the, the essential Americanness of America. And for Americans, in the sort of fish don't know they're wet kind of thing, they take it for granted every single day. And the great thing about talking to uh, immigrants to this country is that they see it. I mean, they see just how wet they are in this kind of thinking. And that's why they came here. As my friend Peter Schramm said, you know, he was born American just in the wrong place. Um, that's just a phenomenally wonderful thing about this country. I mean, talk to Charlie Cook about this stuff. Um, that is what is, you know, so, I mean, there are all sorts of things that are great about this country and people of good cheer and goodwill can pick their own things that they love about this country. But that's sort of what I love about it is that we rejected all of that garbage from not just the old world, but from the entire world going back to the agricultural revolution. And we said, yeah, we're going to do it a different way that you can't necessarily tell whether someone's rich or poor by how they dress, that you can't tell um, whether someone is good or bad by the color of their skin or by their gender, um, that you can't, judge people until you actually know people and um and that the law is going to reflect that cultural norm by treating everybody equally in the eyes of government because they're all equal in the eyes of god and i really think that those things can't be improved upon and so as as fitting with tradition i know it's old hat for some of you um but it gets me every time and um i'm going to read from calvin coolidge's address on the 150th anniversary of um, the founding of, of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, I should say. And it is um, a familiar to longtime listeners or the readers of my book. They know this is a familiar passage to them. It's my favorite passage, but I highly recommend reading the whole thing. Um, it's really wonderful. It's the second best thing ever said about the Declaration after the Gettysburg Address. Or if you want to say it's the third best thing, if you want to put Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech ahead of it, um, that's fine. Uh, I'm, I, I'm a little more reluctant to say the I Have a Dream speech was about the Declaration so much as it invoked it, and that's a perfectly fine distinction by me. But anyway, here's um, my favorite passage, as, as some of you know. 
About the Declaration, there is a finality that is exceedingly restful. It is often asserted that the world has made a great deal of progress since 1776, that we have had new thoughts and new experiences, which have given us a great advance over the people of that day, and that we may therefore very well discard their conclusions for something more modern. But that reasoning cannot be applied to this great charter. If all men are created equal, that is final. If they are endowed with inalienable rights, that is final. If governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, that is final. No advance, no progress can be made beyond these propositions. If anyone wishes to deny their truth or their soundness, the only direction in which he can proceed historically is not forward, but backward. Backward towards the time when there was no equality, no rights of the individual, no rule of the people. Those who wish to proceed in that direction cannot lay claim to progress. They are reactionary. Their ideas are not more modern, but more ancient than those of the revolutionary fathers. This is why Francis Fukuyama was right. He wasn't saying that history, when he said we were at the end of history. Um, he wasn't saying that history is going to stop. He wasn't saying that events of consequence weren't going to happen. He wasn't saying that we couldn't fall back in time to and, and regress and that bad things couldn't happen. He was saying that we basically figured it out. What's the it? About how to organize human societies based on those propositions. And there's a lot of room in those propositions. You can have a very generous welfare state or a social democratic, you know, sort of what Bernie Sanders would think of is how Scandinavia works kind of society. Or you can have a, you know, let your freak flag fly, um, uh, an anarcho-capitalist libertarian society. Uh, we may not are anarcho, but you can have a, a libertarian society um, according to those propositions. But the point is, is that they can't be really improved upon. Um, you can't say that um, we're going to come up with a better system than the one that assumes all people are created equal. You're not going to come up with a better idea that we are endowed with certain inalienable rights. And keep in mind, like the left doesn't dispute that we're endowed with inalienable rights. And the right doesn't dispute that we're endowed with an inalienable rights. We just have arguments about which ones are the inalienable rights. Um, but even there, there's a lot of overlap in the Venn diagrams. This country believes in rights. This country, you know, believes in these propositions at a gut level. And, you know, if governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, what's the better, you know, what's the improvement upon that that we're, we're, that someone might be striving for. What makes things, you know, how is that not final? I mean, it's worth noting that, you know, all of the totalitarian regimes of the last 150 years all claimed to be somehow democratic. You know, they like to use the word democracy in the, in the titles for their countries, you know, um, the, the people's democratic Republic of this, the, you know, and you know, the, the, and the, the thing is, is that they were lying, but that lying was the tribute that, that tyranny pays to freedom because there is no moral legitimacy left for unfreedom. 
I mean, I know some people are trying hard to find it. They're going to fail. And if, even if they do come up with some great argument for it, it will not be an advance on these propositions because the argu all the arguments for unfreedom, for tyranny, for authoritarianism, for totalitarianism, whatever you want to call it, they're old arguments. They're freaking really old arguments. They can be found in the arguments for the divine rights of kings. They can be found in the arguments for a Caesar. They can be found in the arguments for um, every tyrant who ever lived. They are not more modern. Even if you gussy them up with all sorts of expertise sounding words and optimal outcomes and, and you know, sound science and technocracy and all that kind of stuff, that is just all lipstick on the pig of tyranny. The really fantastic breakthrough revolutionary thing in human history was this idea that, you know, our rights come from God, not from government, that we are citizens, not subjects. The fruits of our labors belong to us. And that transformed the world and America led that transformation. And I think continues to lead that transformation despite all of these other things. Plus it's just a, it's a nice place to live. So happy 4th of July. Thank you for listening. I know I went really long. Sorry, Ryan, you're going to have to deal with this. Maybe you cut out some of the stuff up front. I don't know. Um, but thanks for listening. I appreciate it. And I'll see you next time. it is ryan i'm not sure if you know this about me but i'm a bit of a fun fanatic when i can i like to work but i like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.